taste of fruit. Count Chocula's got chocolate marshmallows. Frankenberry's got strawberry flavored marshmallows. Fruit! Fruit fruit with a howling good taste of fruit. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 82, More Tribbles, More Troubles, and The Survivor. From Star Trek, the animated series. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. You've tuned into the show that analyzes the deep thoughts that make up Star Trek. Yes, even the cartoon series. Now, before we get into today's show, I think we should let people know that when we started doing uh, Mission Log, we we actually recorded a couple of like pre-episodes. Uh, this episode that you're going to hear today, we recorded five years ago. Mm, yeah, and actually, the, this intro we recorded a year before that. I think so, yeah. In fact, yeah. you and I had not even spoken... Uh, when we started this conversation. I didn't even own a microphone at the time, Ken. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Yeah, we're, we're actually not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> so so get off your email hate box thing, whatever. We're not we're not doing that. Don't worry. This is a brand new this this still has that new podcast scent. Unless you're listening to this five years from now. In which case we did record it quite a while ago. We did, but yeah. it was worth bringing that up because we get to we, we get to cover a lot of familiar territory here, Ken. Un- Today, unlike unlike Star Trek, I'm sorry not to interrupt you, but unlike yeah, yeah. Star Trek, we actually reference past episodes. <laughs> that's right. That's that's all that that's, was. So please, but, wait, but, but, please. but Ken, but Ken, yeah. Today we are referencing a past episode big time because today it's more troubles, more tribbles, followed up by the survivor. But more importantly. Is more tribbles, more troubles, which is a direct sequel to the season two episode, "The Trouble with Tribbles." Okay, now wait a minute. Did you confuse it the first time? Did I? Can we just go ahead and say it's interchangeable? More tribbles, more troubles, more troubles, more tribbles. Oh, this is because I've been doing it. I've been doing that like in preparing for the show all week. I've been every every time I typed it out. Yeah, uh, it it was confusing. More things, more stuff, and I'm guessing with with all of this, especially you know, we're revisiting. An episode or revisiting a theme mm-hmm. um more tribbles more trivia yes yes well we have quite a bit of trivia to cover both episodes this week uh more tribbles more troubles and the survivor uh the most important thing right off the bat is that more tribbles more troubles written by david gerald because of course uh he actually planned this for the original series, uh, and it got a lot of support for it, but it ultimately got nixed by third season producer Fred Freiberger. So uh, now he finally got to do his planned sequel in the animated series. Um, Ken, you know that uh, the last two episodes of Mission Log, we've talked about how uh, the big three, James Doohan, Major Barrett Roddenberry, and Nichelle Nichols, have done a lot of voices on the animated series, and we wondered how that worked out for the actors doing multiple voices. Well, a couple of our listeners wrote in and they gave us some great information. They said that James Doohan in his autobiography mentioned that his pay doubled if he did more than three voices. He really liked that. No (laughs) doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it does kind of make you wonder, though. You know, we don't have Walter Koenig uh, in any of the episodes as Chekhov. If you're doubling somebody's pay couldn't you bring in another actor at the regular pay rate and not double the other well whatever economically it must have worked out for them uh but duan said in his autobiography that he did that in about 10 episodes where he played four or more characters uh maximum of five i believe speaking of voices that is stanley adams playing cyrano jones again he of course originated that role in tos and he co-wrote the mark of gideon uh, you can always go back and listen to that Mission Log episode. Ken, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but he was actually also in The Night Stalker, and he later appeared in an episode of Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Okay, you see, here's the thing. You actually did not mention that because I was joking about us having recorded this show before the series started, but we right. actually recorded the Trouble with Tribbles episode of Mission Log before we actually started doing that, and right. Kolchak didn't hit as a running gag until right. season three of of the original series as we covered it. So, no, you yeah. did not mention that. So so there's brand new trivia for what is largely 
um, a retreaded episode. <laughs> And those of you who are new to Mission Log, that is a running gag, and boy, is it great. Oh, yeah. Um, never, yeah. <laughs> never never, gets old, ever. Never, not ever. at all. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit of trivia for our second episode, The Survivor. Um, we finally get to meet another new crew member, Mress, who is a feline. That is Majel providing her voice. Uh, Nichelle Nichols does the voice for Anne Norred. And, uh, man, th- this kind of blew my mind. That is Ted Knight as Carter Winston in that episode. Ted Knight, of course, from Too Close for Comfort and uh, the Mary, Mary Tyler, Tyler Moore, Moore show. show. Yeah. Not, not Kolchak. You know what's weird? I spent the whole episode thinking that that was uh, Shatner. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Some people have said that. Yeah. Some people have said that they thought that it was Shatner, but no, indeed, it was actually Ted Knight. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Finally, we, we have to mention that Joanna is mentioned in The Survivor. Um, many people pointed out to us that uh, this was the working title for The Way to Eden, in which one of those space hippies would have been McCoy's daughter, Joanna. So at least that is a, uh, a plot point that didn't actually get explored on the original series, but then has a new life in the animated series. Cartoon number one. More Tribbles. More Troubles. Act one. You know what's one better than Quadro Triticale? That would be Quinto Triticale. And the Enterprise is leading a couple of drone ships full of the stuff to Sherman's planet, where there's been famine conditions. You remember Sherman's planet, right? If you don't, now might be a good time to go back and listen to our coverage of an often overlooked little episode of Star Trek called The Trouble with Tribbles. Kirk is a little worried that the Klingons might show up, and they do. Kirk has also heard that they have some kind of new weapon. The Klingons aren't after the Enterprise, though. They're firing at a little scout ship, but Kirk has the pilot beamed aboard just in time. At that point, the Klingons turn toward the Enterprise and start using that new weapon, a force field that seems to disrupt just about every system. Now we meet the captain of the Klingon ship, our old friend Koloth. Kirk wants to be let go. Koloth just wants the pilot of that scout ship. Kirk has a trick up the sleeve, though. Those robot grain ships will be maneuvered to distract the Klingon ship, which will be overexerted with that new weapon fending off three ships. It works. Kinda. The Klingon heads off after getting in a shot on one of the drone ships, disabling the warp drive on it. Scotty has finally been able to beam aboard the scout ship pilot, and if it didn't already feel like old home week on the starship, it really should now. Who else should materialize on board but none other than 23rd century salesman of questionable ethics, Cyrano Jones. He sells tribbles, remember? If you don't remember, he's got tribbles with him. Pink ones. A lot of them. Act 2. While it's not exactly a fond reunion, Jones tries to allay any of Kirk's worries, though. These tribbles are different. They're genetically modified to not reproduce like those other tribbles. He's also got a new trick, a little orange animal called a glomer that eats tribbles. Jones was being chased by the Klingons for selling tribbles on a Klingon planet, an act of ecological sabotage in their eyes. McCoy confirms Jones's claim that the tribbles won't reproduce. They will, however, just eat and get bigger. At the staff meeting, Kirk expresses that his bigger concern is the new Klingon weapon. They will be back to find Jones. Meanwhile... Scotty has beamed all the Quinto Triticale aboard the Enterprise from the damaged ship. You see where this is going, right? There's a bunch of grain on board. There's also a bunch of tribbles on board. Wait for it. Wait for it. The Klingons reappear and go after the other grain ship. It's now disabled, and Koloth turns his attention to the Enterprise. The new weapon shakes things up on the Enterprise just enough to spill over a bunch of grain, and those tribbles go to town on it like tourists at an all-night Vegas buffet. Even the glomer can't swallow them anymore. The Klingons have veered off again, with the Enterprise now having to tow the second disabled robot ship. It makes them vulnerable, and that may have been the plan all along. Kirk confronts Jones now that the Tribbles are getting huge, and they're eating all the grain that was intended for Sherman's planet. Could that be the ecological sabotage the Klingons were upset about? Kirk has Sulu release the robot ship from the tractor beam. Now it's time to get into battle mode with the Klingons coming back. 
Act 3, only one torpedo was fired by the Enterprise before Koloth can reactivate the new field weapon. The Enterprise is trapped, and Koloth demands that Kirk hand over Cyrano Jones. As Koloth prepares his men to beam aboard the Enterprise, Kirk has beamed aboard a bunch of those fat tribbles onto the Klingon vessel. Now they're kind of even. Looks like Koloth wasn't interested in taking Jones by force, though. He tells Kirk all he really wants is the glomer, a creature engineered by the Klingons to rid themselves of tribbles. Kirk agrees. He sends the glomer over the Klingons, and the Klingons release the Enterprise from the stasis field weapon. In the aftermath... McCoy finds that the job Jones did on these tribbles wasn't that good. True, they can't reproduce, but these giants are actually colonies of multiple tribbles. The Klingons find that out the hard way. One blast from a disruptor, and a giant tribble becomes a thousand little ones. McCoy is a little more gentle. He finds a solution of neoethylene to break them down into their smaller units, but actually keep them as safe tribbles. Kirk, because it's required by some kind of tribble law, ends up with Tribbles falling on his head. The end. Okay, are we sure we didn't actually record this episode before? <laughs> I did. It sounds an awful lot like... Uh, yeah, this is very much a rerun of The Trouble with Tribbles. Sherman's Planet, Wheat, Klingons, uh, Tribbles, I think, which I think I mentioned. Um, I wonder, Tribbles falling on Kirk's head. I'm actually wondering if we shouldn't just go back and re-edit the uh, Mission Log episode. <laughs> Maybe that's a good idea. We just yeah. place that in might, here. Might save time. I will say there is there's a tremendous difference between mm-hmm. um, the trouble with Tribbles and more Tribbles, more Troubles. What is that? Um, well, I hear that the director's cut of this episode of the animated series uh, has yeah. a bar fight that is as long as the cartoon. Oh, good. Now, it's not, it's not available on DVD or anything, but sometimes you yeah. can find it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But do me a favor. Don't spend too much time looking because, as usual, this is the part of the show that I'm making up. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> All right. I would enjoy that, though, a two-dimensional bar fight that runs on for about half an oh, hour. Lord have mercy. Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting, except for the interesting part. It would be more interesting, like, why? That would be the thing. Mm. Um, forgive me. I, I got one more thing, and then I, w- I want you to say stuff. Cause, yeah, sure. Uh, although you just talked for, like, five minutes. I did. So it give me give me a long. chance, would you? Go ahead. Um, I kind of wish The Trouble with Tribbles had been 23 minutes long. This was zippy. I mean, this yeah. moved, and that, and I'm not, and I'm not bashing the trouble with tribbles and saying that, but you tell me that this was going to be a season three episode, and and I lose weight just thinking about sitting through that. I mean, th- this <laughs> moved, you know, this 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 actually went at a decent pace. Yeah. And had you turned this from 23 minutes to 48 minutes, right? I mean, I don't know. Unless you're going to introduce like some you know wacky star-crossed couple, kind of like they did in the later Marx Brothers movies. I mean, if you're not going to throw something else entirely different into this, my goodness, that would be a long episode. You could kind of put them together. You could put together the original Tribbles and this Tribbles into one 48-minute show. And take out the bar fight. Uh, yeah, right. Or bar, bar fights. Fight. Yeah, I there guess. There you go. Because, yeah. you know, I, I heard that there's like a 58-minute cartoon version of that bar fight on YouTube. <laughs> right. Don't look for it. Hey, did you hear Kirk say ecological sabotage? Did I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think we have to decide now that that's not Kirk, that's Shatner. That is. Yeah, yeah. if if either of us ever bump into him any place, we should ask him. Like, what was that what was that Beastie Boys song? Do you remember that one with the video <laughs> and just see see how he says it. That'll go over great. Yeah. I'm sure that'll go over really well I with think, him. I, I think that would be wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have noticed that, uh, speaking of, as we were earlier about James Doohan doing multiple voices, that was Doohan as the Klingon commander Koloff, originally played by William Campbell, who we last saw in The Trouble with Tribbles, playing yeah. Koloff. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And we will see him again, of course, but uh, that day is yet to come. Um you know, it was interesting to me. I, I wondered if they said that those tribbles don't reproduce, mm-hmm. how they actually get more tribbles. Shoot them with a phaser. Well, once they get big. Right. But, but when they were small, when they were tiny little tribbles, they still were non-reproducing tribbles. Well, so, you, you feed them and they get fat and then you shoot them with a phaser. Oh, okay. wow. I mean, that's what happened. I mean, that's. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know how you don't know how that happens because well, it happens twice happens, in this episode. I know that happens at the end of the episode when we right. discover that fat tribbles are actually a bunch of little tribbles. But when Scotty first beams aboard Jones, he beams aboard a bunch of little tribbles. Yeah, and McCoy we- says, these don't reproduce. Well, h- how do you get all those little tribbles? 
I still don't understand how you don't know, but can we actually go to can we go to <laughs> okay. another thing? Go ahead. Why did Scotty beam over the dribbles? I mean, he mm-hmm. says that Jones yeah. has dribbles with him as if Jones had them like in his pocket. I mean, they were all around and when Scotty beamed him out, could could explain why he had so much trouble beaming Jones out, by the way. I, I think that is part of it. I think the other part of it may be that, well, he, he just sees a biological thing on that ship. So he, he's got to bring that on board. Maybe. Yeah. He's, hey, look, there's a living thing. We're a lot of little living things. Well, there's things. like 90 yeah. living things, right? So we got to get them. Yeah. And don't yeah. worry about what they are. Mm-hmm. Just bring mm-hmm. those aboard. Um, are you like me? You think the Klingons maybe should should work with a little redundancy? Yeah, they, well, you know. They have one glomer. One. Yeah, Koloth says that, that they need that one. Right. In order to create more. Right. And how did Jones get it? Yeah, well, he stole it. Well, how? I, uh, I, mean, I, I assume that it's in, like, some kind of lab. He's he's wily, <laughs> that Jones. Really? Yeah, well. Because he's huge uh, and slow moving and not Klingon. <laughs> I'm thinking it, it would really, this would be a difficult, see, there's your cartoon. Cyrano <laughs> Jones stealing the glomer. Yeah, how he did that was actually what I want to see. If anybody's got that novel, send it my way. <laughs> Very good. Um, actually, there's a funny thing about the glomer that didn't make it into the final script. Throughout the episode, the glomer was supposed to be getting bigger and bigger, and members of the Enterprise crew were supposed to start disappearing. Oh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, and kind of dark. Uh, a little dark, yeah. yeah. I, I would say that's actually very dark. That was David Gerald's original idea, and it, it didn't make it past uh, story editing, <laughs> unfortunately. But I think it's hilarious. Well, it's the kind of thing you can do in a cartoon. I don't think that that would. Ne- I don't think that would have worked on season three. Mm-hmm. You right. know what I mean? I mean, you right, can't. It'd right. be like, hey, have you seen Lieutenant Ramirez? Or, you know, <laughs> anybody? No, have you? No, weird. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah. He must have yeah. eaten something on a planet, <laughs> something like that. Oh, the Zaz. Um, do you remember how we've always been worried about the Enterprise totally abandoning responsibility after completing whatever missions it has? You know, like they never go back to a planet to see if things are okay. Well, I, I like that we actually do that here. We're going to Sherman's planet and we are taking them grain. It's like a direct, you know, you say it's, it's too redundant. Yeah. Well, it is, I, it is too redundant. It is. It is. But at least we're showing that this is a continuing thing. Sherman's planet still exists in the galaxy, and we still have to be responsible for it in some way. And and it, it completely has the inability to learn from past whatevers. Mm-hmm. What is it? Give a man a fish. He'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish. Don't teach Sherman's planet how to grow grain, though. <laughs> right. Don't do that because it's fun to go back there. It, it, it's it's like a, it's like a little it's like a little romp every time we're there, and yep. and almost die at the hands of helpless animals. Maybe next week we'll go back to the planet uh, where the apple was and uh, find out how the followers of Val are eh, doing. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. Hey, it is cool that in this episode we see robot ships or drone ships, as I call them. The these unmanned. This is kind of a new design that uh, that we get to see in Star Trek. I thought they were neat. They Wait were a minute, re- mm-hmm. new the first time or new new? Because they looked very familiar to me. Is it something that's in the remaster? Maybe because because mm, yeah. they looked like something I've seen before. Yeah, no, they, this is technically the first time we have seen this kind of ship. Okay, yeah, yeah, except. So, not anymore. Except not anymore. Okay. <laughs> right. Just checking. Just um, checking. I guess the other thing that I would point out here is that, uh, as it is with many cartoons, everybody in this episode is just a terrible shot. Um, Klingons cannot hit anything <laughs> with their weapons that explode a few meters from the target every single time. Um, yeah, everybody is just really bad at shooting things. I, I wondered if it was kind of like, uh, remember the G.I. Joe cartoon from the 80s that uh, you could show you could show a, a vehicle getting hit, but never that there were people in that vehicle getting hit. Hmm. You know, they would always be ejected at some point. Or in this case, you get Cyrano Jones and his cute, adorable tribbles beamed aboard before his ship gets destroyed. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like prelude to a stormtrooper. Yeah, right. Awesome marksmen, the stormtroopers. Yeah, right. <laughs> they were so good. Stick around for them. Yeah. 
So do you want to talk about, I mean, the ecological lessons, again, are almost um, bonk, bonk on the head. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, do you want to hit one of those? Yeah, well, I mean, I I think there were a few here, and they they tie in nicely to the original Trouble with the Tribbles. But Mm -hmm. uh, the the things that I thought about more here uh, was the idea of playing with technological progress that solves a problem, Mm -hmm. then creates another problem. Yeah. You know, I mean, fortunately, this is Star Trek, and at the end, McCoy is ready with a, a more advanced, perfect solution to their problem. He's like, well, no, no, no. The, the problem was that Jones had it wrong. I've got it right. Right. I will, I will solve this, you know. Um, and, and in sort of an idealized technological future, that's what we want to happen. You know, you think about, okay, what, what is a pressing scientific issue today? Take climate change. And you go, okay, well, here are all these things that we could possibly do to help curb that. But many of those also have maybe foreseen or unforeseen future downsides as well. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. um, and in fact, this reminded me of a film that I saw from an old World's Fair exhibit. Um, I think it was like the 64 World's Fair. And they were saying that basically the problem in these days after World War II, well, we couldn't build highways fast enough. So here's a machine, a machine of the future that could just wipe out an entire forest in a day and lay a track of asphalt. And, and you see the audience and the enthusiasm of the narrator of this video is like, yeah, this, this is like magic. This is exactly what we need. And then in hindsight, you go, yeah, that, that's great, except for the massive impact of deforestation, you know. And, and in this episode, we get to look at, at something that is maybe a little hard to grasp for an eight-year-old audience uh, or an audience of eight-year-olds, rather. Um, we're looking at the science of genetic engineering, Kind of. We, we mention it. We don't really talk about it in great detail. Right. Uh, but we, we have the ability to genetically engineer all kinds of things now to suit our needs. But we still need to follow the protocols to understand how they will behave. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's kind of the central conundrum here uh, of this episode. Um, the, the other thing that I thought of with this, have you heard about the zebra mussel problem in Lake Michigan? Yeah, the problem is I don't think it's actually just Lake Michigan anymore. Oh, it, it spread like crazy. Yeah, but, because they're uh, all because all the Great Lakes are connected. But go mm-hmm. ahead and well, yes, all the Great Lakes are connected. I haven't heard about it. I don't think in Lake Ontario, but living as I do, um, right. very close to Lake Erie, I've heard about it here. But go ahead. Right, right. Well, this kind of started uh, as as a thing sometime in the eighties, and uh, basically they trace it back to Russian ships that were uh, uh, coming where. I, I say Russian specifically, but they're talking about ships from Asia coming in uh, across the Atlantic and going through the seaway and ending up in the Great Lakes and then dumping water and having these microscopic eggs for zebra mussels. Well, all of a sudden, over the course of about maybe a decade, Lake Michigan starts to look very, very clean. It's very clear. The water's beautiful. And the zebra mussels are basically eating all the dirt, all the nasty stuff, and making the water clean. Well, this is great. We have clean water now. The downside is, though, by making it that clean, there's this explosion of algae <laughs> underneath, which is actually kind of a nasty thing. And they, uh, the zebra mussels were eating a lot of the plankton that other animals in the Great Lakes should have been eating so that you have uh, a change in population of vertebrate and invertebrate animals that should have been eating those plankton. So you have what looks like initially a great boon to the lakes, cleaner water, but then the long-term downside is potentially very dangerous. And uh, now the problem is, well, how do we control the population of zebra mussels? So I thought about that when watching this episode, too, kind of the unforeseen impact of ecological change. Yeah, well, the unforeseen impact of ecological change, I think the only the only problem I have with what you're saying, and, and mm-hmm. I like what you're saying, but the only problem I have is that was actually an accident. I mean, like mm-hmm. a complete mm-hmm. accident. And, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. somebody super forward thinking could say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't take that ship because it might drop something microscopic in a lake. But I would mostly give people a pass on that. 
Um, yeah, yeah. It actually puts me more in mind of like the whole kudzu thing, where it's like, hey, we have this this species that's a uh, plant that's going to mm-hmm. help, uh, you know, stop erosion. And holy cow, did it take over the South? <laughs> right. I mean, it's like it's like sure it's like did. from uh, from Creep Show. I mean, yeah. it just yeah. it just well, it creeps all yeah. over the place. I and it, it it really makes for fascinating pictures. It's like, wow, what do you think is under that pile of kudzu? Mm-hmm. Could be oh, a car. Fantastic. Could yeah. be a shed. There's no telling. <laughs> <laughs> and one day, you know, further north, we may actually ask ourselves the same question. There was there was one thing outside of the ecological thing that uh, sort of hit me with this episode. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but wonder if there was not a tiny bit of a message about overextending yourself here, almost a mutually assured destruction thing. Mm. Um, the Klingons have this really neat weapon that can render the Enterprise practically inert. Uh, the only problem is it also renders the Klingons practically inert <laughs> right which is right. kind of it's, it's it's kind of an interesting it's all or nothing i mean like in in texas hold'em that would be all in right yeah i mean that's yeah. just like you know here there's everything on the table so now now we're both screwed yeah fun warring with you yeah although i do have to hand it to the klingons that this is a non-destructive weapon yeah which is kind of interesting yeah. that their tactic would just be to immobilize the enemy so yeah. that, that can actually be pretty handy in the right hands, but you know. See, again, we have the redundancy question, right? So, mm-hmm. so you take two Klingon ships, one <laughs> that can you know incapacitate the Enterprise and itself, yeah, and then the other one is like, sup, <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't beam yourself anywhere. There's more Mission Log ahead, right after this. Get the Star Trek Tricorder, complete with a Star Trek cassette adventure. An authentic replica of the Star Trek Tricorder carried by Dr. Bones McCoy and Mr. Spock. It has a built-in microphone and mini readout screen. And includes a carry strap so you can take it anywhere. I got the tape from Johnny. Get the tricorder. Let's play it. The Star Trek tricorder is a full-function cassette tape player and comes complete with pre-recorded Star Trek adventure. Check the mini readout window. Patrolling outposts. Listen to the voices of your favorite Star Trek heroes or turn the cassette over and press the record button and you can tape your own adventures. USS Enterprise is moving to investigate... The Star Trek tricorder with built-in microphone and mini-readout screen. New solid-state electronics by Mego. And now, back to Mission Log. Cartoon number two. The Survivor. Act one. The Enterprise is patrolling the border of the Romulan neutral zone. They'll pull back from that duty to assist a one-man ship registered to Carter Winston. Kind of crazy, though. Winston disappeared five years ago. Still beam him aboard and sure looks like him, sounds like him, claims to be him, and Kirk and McCoy are starstruck. Winston's rich and famous and philanthropic. He's spent dozens of fortunes helping the Federation throughout his career as a trader. T-R-A-D-E-R, trader. Hey, you know who's going to be really happy to see Winston? His fiance, security officer Ann Norad. In fact, Spock will be happy to get those two kids together if he could just check Winston's identity tapes and have him submit to a physical, please. Bones is insulted on Winston's behalf, but Winston's cool with it. He hands over the identity tapes. And they check out. The medical exam, though, does not. McCoy is getting some odd readings off of Winston. Readings he's never gotten off a human. But come on, this is Carter Winston, so it's cool. He lets Winston go see his fiancée, Lieutenant Norad. Spock was right. She is happy. For her, it's as if five years have not passed. She's as in love as she was when last she saw Winston. Winston, though, not so much. Five years is a long time, man. My ship crashed on Vendor. I nearly died. Sure, they put me back together, but that'll take a lot out of a guy. Things change. You need to forget me. Winston stops by Kirk's quarters to make small talk and turn into a giant floating space squid and incapacitate Kirk and shapeshift into him? 
Now it's up to the bridge where the shape-shifted Kirk orders the Enterprise across the Romulan neutral zone to save a planet or something. Spock and Sulu urge against it, but foe Kirk says Winston says there are no Romulans in this area, and his word is good. Coarsely then, Kirk turns the con back over to Spock and heads off the bridge as we head to commercial. Act 2. Kirk's back on the bridge and... Hey weird, I think I fell asleep while I was working on the Winston report. And I never fall asleep while working on a report. And what the crud are we doing in the neutral zone? Spock tells Kirk that he ordered it to save some planet or something. Then he plays back video of Kirk ordering it to save some planet or something. He orders the ship out of the neutral zone at warp 8. He gives Scotty the con and has a short chat with Spock. I need medical tests. I'm blacking out. I'm endangering the ship. Get me to the doctor. That would be Dr. McCoy, who's talking with Winston, who is now incapacitating McCoy and shapeshifting into him. Apparently, these are McCoy's advice for the lovelorn hours. Lieutenant Norad stops by to talk with McCoy about her feelings for Winston. Oh, yes, says Phil McCoy. He told me about this. Five years is a long time, man. Things change. You need to forget him. In comes Kirk for a surprise medical exam. I need a complete workup. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Bone says he has too much to do right now. Too many tests to process. Spock asks if one of those tests is Carter Winston's. But Foe McCoy says no, those tests are done and they're fine. Spock asks if McCoy is sure that that is right. And McCoy says he could in fact be wrong. And that is a sure indication to both Spock and Kirk that something is wrong. With McCoy. The two head back to sickbay to quiz the doctor, but he's not there. He's in another room, waking from a nap, on the floor. Doctor, you're weird, says Spock, but you're not that weird. Something is going on. Kirk thinks something's wrong in sickbay. He starts yelling at a table to show itself to be Winston. And it does. Time for an explanation from Spock. Winston is not Winston, but Faux Winston. A Vendorian. Shapeshifters. That plus their habit of deceit has led to their planet being quarantined. Spock calls for security, but the Vendorian, in space squid form, overpowers all three men. Spock puts the ship on intruder alert and warns everyone that the intruder could be... well, anyone. Rather than use that to his advantage, though, the Vendorian changes back into Carter and promptly bumps into Anne. Yeah, she knows he's the shapeshifter. He runs from her just as Kirk approaches. Why did you not fire on him? He is so like Carter. Well, heck, he's gone now. And now he could be anyone again. Suddenly, the ship's at red alert. Scotty tells Kirk that there are two Romulan battlecruisers headed straight toward the Enterprise. Act 3. So that's their game, says Kirk. The Romulans hired the Vendorian to come aboard the Enterprise, shapeshift into Kirk, order the Enterprise across the neutral zone where they could impound it per the terms of the treaty between the Romulans and the Federation. Implausible as that might sound, that actually was their game. Kirk calls the Romulan on his game. Due to treaty violations, he will not be surrendering the Enterprise. Thank you very much. In engineering, some red shirt is disabling the ship's shields. That would be the Vendorian. Scotty says it'll take a couple of hours to fix. The Vendorian, meanwhile, is trying to escape, though his way is blocked by Lieutenant Norad. She won't get fooled again, and... Oh, yeah. The real Winston said you were like this, says the faux Winston. Smart. Gentle. All around awesome. See, he really loved you, and I spent a lot of time taking care of him. And not to creep you out, but I'm kind of turning into him. The longer we stay in another's form, the more we pick up their feelings, attitudes, memories. He loved you. And I'm starting to. But seriously, I'm a space squid. Think you could live with a space squid and... That could be a deal breaker. In walks Kirk. He's got the drop on Foe Winston, but the ship is rocked from fire from one of the Romulans. Foe Winston escapes. Back on the bridge, Kirk assesses their chances against the Romulans. Not good with no shields. But suddenly the shields are up. That gives the Enterprise enough cover and time to fire on the Romulans, who back down. Kirk figures they must be worried about their spy. Good work on those shields, Scotty. But Scotty says it wasn't him. Seriously, it's going to take hours to fix those. Spock surmises that the shield was the Vendorian. If he can turn himself into a table, he can turn himself into a shield. Again, they're spot on. That is what happened. On the bridge, the Vendorian apologizes. See, on his planet, he's kind of a nobody. Considered good for nothing. 
The Romulans gave him a chance to be something, to have a life, to have value. But he is so Carter Winston now. He couldn't let anything happen to the Enterprise. To Anne. Well, thanks, says Kirk, but you'll have to stand trial. But I will make sure they know that while you did endanger the Enterprise, you also saved it. Anne asks if she can be the one to guard Winston. Seriously, Anne, I'm a space squid. (sighs) We'll talk. Then it's a little good-natured ribbing between Spock and McCoy. The end. I'm a little concerned that Dr. McCoy does not know how many tables are in Sipay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's, that's the thing that worries me the most. Really? That's the thing that worries you the most? Because there are a well, few things. Well, I'm just, I'm worried that, you know, he's standing in there with Kirk and Kirk's like, wait, something's wrong. Yeah. And McCoy's like, yeah, nothing's wrong here. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, even Spock didn't realize. Highly logical Spock. Spock with the you know photographic memory. Spock who mm. can tell you exactly how many seconds it is until you're going to die. He can right. figure probabilities to you know the the second um, decimal point without really even thinking. Right. Right. But then Kirk's like, uh, there were two tables in here, and now there are three. And Spock's right. like, yeah, I just thought of that. <laughs> right. Really? Now right. I, I, there's a bigger there's a bigger concern for me though. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. McCoy, it, it reminded me of, of that old joke, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes, right? Mm-hmm. A little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so McCoy is checking out Carter Winston. Carter Winston, who, by the way, is totally awesome. He's like, yeah. he's like yeah. the 23rd century's version of uh, maybe Richard Branson, maybe Elon Musk, you know, somebody like that for people. A little who combination. Who those are. Of yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, kind of amazing. Yeah. Keeps making lots of money and then blowing it, saving the Federation. After <laughs> a while, by the way, maybe not Richard Branson, because after a while, Branson would be like, yeah, you know, the first six times, this seemed like a good investment. <laughs> right. But we're up to like 12 times now. I've given you guys all of the money that I'm able to make like 12 times, and you keep blowing it on. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're just pouring wheat on some planet someplace that can't <laughs> seem to keep itself fed, but whatever. Teach them to fish. Teach them. To, right? yeah. Give them seeds, which actually mm-hmm. they are. That's what yeah. wheat is. Okay, anyway. So, so while all of this is happening... A nurse chapel tells McCoy that their instruments are fine. You know, mm-hmm. after after they get the nutty readings off Winston, right. and McCoy is like, "Well, obviously our instruments are screwed, so let's work on that." Because look at him; he's Carter right. Winston, right. and you know, right. I'm a I'm a doctor, so I know just by looking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never mind the protocols that say these tests have to work out before we let anybody go anywhere. All of that kind of made me wonder about the assertion that the thing that was out of character for McCoy Mm -hmm. is that he had doubt. Interesting. Because to me, if it had been Spock who had say, you know, say the the Vendorian had taken the the place of Spock Mm -hmm. and suddenly Spock's like, I don't know. I guess I'll just have to figure it out. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. Then you would go, that's not Spock. Right. But, But if it's McCoy, who in our model here is pathos. Uh, out of this group, then, uh, you know, I I would think it would be more likely that McCoy would have doubt about something. Um, See, what's interesting is I I didn't even think that it was, I didn't think that they knew it wasn't McCoy because he didn't doubt. I assumed that they didn't think it was McCoy because he didn't say, why you pointy-eared, (laughs) green-blooded science officer, do you want a stethoscope? I mean, the the fact that he just, you know, I mean, he, I, I think McCoy is actually okay to say, I'll run the test again. I mean, it seems mm-hmm, like we've heard mm-hmm. that before. But the fact that, you know, he was just like, oh, yeah, whatever, dude, as opposed, yeah, as right. opposed to, you know, which Maybe is that was it. generally yeah. McCoy's reaction to Spock saying, are you really a doctor? <laughs> right. <laughs> which Spock says quite a bit. Um, I was really glad to see the Romulans back, um, but I was kind of bummed to see that they were in a Klingon ship. Uh, I, I really wish that uh, we had gotten an animated version of the Romulan Bird of Prey. I thought that would have been very cool. But, hey, we got Romulans, so um, I'm good with that. Um, I, I want to go back to the Carter Winston thing really quickly because I, I like your description of uh, him as like an Elon Musk, uh, Richard Branson, maybe even like a Bill Gates now that, oh. that Bill Gates has made a ton of money. and Yeah, and, and Warren Buffett too, actually. They both, signed, Buffett, they yeah. both signed that pledge where – I mean, they're going to be rich while they're alive, but, you know, most of their money, which, I mean, it's still going to leave their heirs 
<laughs> yeah, right, right. Sitting pretty, but most of their money is actually going to be uh, given to good causes. So, yeah. But, but I, wondered, I wondered about that idea of personal wealth again in the 23rd century. Because, yeah. you know, there, there are many times now in the original series that we've assigned a value to something. Um, and, and people can clearly accumulate more of that value of that wealth than others and then use it to, fortunately in Carter Winston's case, do something good with it. But you also have to assume that there are people who would do something very bad with it. Um, hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the well, idea of wealth and a, a accumulation of wealth is very much alive and well. We never really – I guess we have. Um, Harry Mudd. Mm-hmm. Harry Mudd did bad things for money. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not Harry Mudd did bad things with money, but he did bad things for money. Mm-hmm. I, we we really haven't to this point anyway come across anybody who's like used their personal wealth to plunder planets. I mean that that tends to be left to alien races, not right, right, not not people like us who just get a little uh, get a little greedy. Yeah, yeah, or, or they just kind of they they have their fortune and then they go away. Yeah, you know. Huh. Maybe. So that, that, that is sort of a thing that happens. Um, I have to say that I, I, I like the uh, – or maybe I'm just entertained by the very budget-friendly animation of the creature here, the, the Vendorian. He, he just sort of glides along, and yeah. it's only two of the tentacles that are moving. <laughs> you know, I, I was just entertained by it. Honestly, I liked him. I liked his yeah. design quite a bit. He was um, very cool looking. I have no problem believing that that thing is, is holding Kirk when he's lowering him on the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I like the fact that, you know, it makes sense that he would be able to disable all three of them because normally mm-hmm. you have like one guy standing there who is suddenly able to disable all three of them. And there's no way that should work. Right. But, you know, the, the, the like thing from Cthulhu or you know, yeah. whatever, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it makes it's actually a sensible monster to me. Um, it's good to see Starfleet doing what Starfleet does as mm-hmm. seeking out new life and new civilizations, civilizations rather, and then wrapping them in police tape. <laughs> you know, that that says do not cross because, yeah. again, we've done that. It's like, oh, they're shapeshifters and they're deceitful, uh, so we don't go there. Yeah. And and nobody's allowed to go there and they're not allowed to leave. And well, at least we know there's not a death penalty for going there. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know? That's true. Um, it, it strikes me actually as a little bit sad once you find out – because Spot calls them deceitful. I mean, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. again uh, – Surprising thing at times when when certain people in Star Trek or certain certain characters in Star Trek will go ahead and apply labels like that. Technically, I guess they are deceitful, but deceit implies intent to me. And what Winston is actually saying to Anne later is, you know, the more we're around somebody, the more we become like them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so it's not – it doesn't seem to me like – I mean, they're not sitting on their planet going, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to take over a country by, you know, being the president. But I mean, right. or at least that's not the impression that we get. The impression that we get actually is uh, is, is that this is a thing that just happens to them, uh, just, yeah, just right, through right. their association, which is which is which is kind of an interesting idea uh, to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I got another. I got another question. Okay. So something's wrong with the shields, and Scotty mm-hmm. says this is going to take a couple of hours to fix, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you know the shields are up, yay, and they're safe, yay, and 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 Kirk turns to Scotty, who's on the bridge, and says, "Good job on those shields." And Scotty's like, "No, seriously, I said that was going to take a few hours." Why is he not working on the shield? I know, right, right. <laughs> Luckily, there was an alien there that you know apparently can turn itself into shield. Yeah, but yeah. but why, why is he not working? I mean, is that like the first thing that happens when once we hit the end? Does Kirk turn to Scotty and say, "All right, seriously, what were you doing here the whole time?" <laughs> right, it's going to take a couple of hours because I have to do this other thing first. <laughs> right. It's going to take a couple yeah. of hours, you know, once my uh, union mandated break is over. Right. What? Right. what? I mean, what do you what? <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought we had uh, shades of the man trap here. With uh, the the scene with Anne being unable to shoot Carter Winston because it was the image of her lover, um, you, you know, it's good time. Good good thing that she didn't this time around because ultimately he had to be there to save the ship. And, and there's actually a happier ending to this episode than we had with the man trap. So um, <laughs> I, love, I love the fact though that you're seeing shades of the man trap in you know the fact that she was unable to shoot him, not in the fact that we have a shapeshifter running around the Enterprise. Well, no, obviously it's it's the same thing, but I'm talking about that scene. Yes, that scene where Kirk says you got to shoot. You know, yeah, but yeah, yeah. You're right. 
Yeah, but the whole thing, obviously. Um, and and uh, do, do we notice that burn? Man, Spock let loose with a jab at McCoy's competence. In the end? Yeah. Yeah. When McCoy says, um, yeah, if he'd stuck around, there might have been two Spocks and that'd be too much to handle. And Spock was like, hey, if we had two McCoys, we might have one doctor. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It, it wasn't just like the regular ribbing, like, uh, oh, you, you're emotional. Oh, you're logical. Uh, it, no, this was like, you're incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> One you're, day, you're not very good at your job. One day McCoy's just going to be like, you know, that really does hurt. <laughs> kind of like, kind of like on the planet with uh, Marriott Hartley when yeah. Spock's like, you know, every time you call me a racial epithet based on the fact that I'm from Vulcan, mm-hmm. I, I don't like it. You think one mm-hmm. day, you know, McCoy's going to be like, look, I went to medical school, okay? I got a diploma. If you want to see it, right. cut me some slack, would you? I don't right. say what a bad scientist you are. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so how about lessons to uh, to wrap it all up? What do we get out of this episode, The Survivor? Go for it. You start. Well, um, I, the thing that I like about this episode overall is that we're in very familiar Star Trek territory. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have an enemy that isn't really an enemy at, at its core. Um, we see some compassion from Kirk for this enemy, for this creature, the unknown. Um and we kind of get to step back into that question that Gene Roddenberry posed a few times uh, about what is the unique element that makes us human. So in this case, it's the memories that the Vendorian picked up from Carter Wilson that affected him emotionally. So it was kind of like, you know, Sargon getting a taste of humanity from Kirk or Kirk using jealousy to get under the skin of the Kelvins and buy any other name. So th- there's that that spark, that experience, whatever it is that made the Vendorian different from what he used to be. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. That was well done in this episode. You know what? You know what this made me think of? Mm-hmm. Do you know what brought down the Corleone family? <laughs> what what brought down the Corleone family? Michael didn't have any faith in Fredo. Mm-hmm. Michael okay. had no faith in Fredo, and because Michael yeah. had no faith in Fredo, one day um, Hyman Roth was able to call, or actually Johnny Olaf was able to call uh, on behalf of Hyman Roth and say, hey, Fredo, can you do this thing for us? Mm-hmm. There's something in it for you. This Carter Winston alien mm-hmm. is a useless sort on his planet. He is not mm-hmm. a producer, I believe is what they say, is what right. he says. Right. And he's he's really just good for menial tasks. And somebody comes to him and says, there's something in it for you. And he ends up, you know, practically wrecking the Enterprise and practically killing a bunch of people uh, to make that happen. So I can't help but wonder if there isn't some kind of lesson in here. And it's not it's not an over-the-head lesson. But I can't help but wonder if there's not some lesson in here about not just, you know, uh, treating people poorly because you don't see their value. Mm. Because, I mm-hmm. mean, first of all, mm-hmm. they may have value, as this Vendorian uh, ends up having. And second... Uh, if you don't pay attention to what they're doing, yeah, they may come back and bite you. Yeah. They, yeah. Which, which I mean, sounds sort of, uh, I don't know, I'm hoping it sounds compassionate. It also sounds fairly Machiavellian. But, I mean, seriously, it just, I mean, treating him like crud because you can't see what his value is. And, th- and this would apply to, I suppose, just about anybody. Um, treating people like crud just because you have no use for them yourself doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know... There may be danger. Mm-hmm. There may be danger mm-hmm. in doing that. I will say also, just because of the way the Vendorians operate, there's a tiny bit of fake it till you make it here, or maybe <laughs> the inverse of the Gorgon's mantra, um, as uh, you do, as you do, so shall you believe. Uh-huh. Because, you know, he's, he's just living the Carter Winston life, and he's living the Carter Winston life to get it over on the Enterprise and become this, you know, bigwig with the Romulans. But he, you know, goes into that to such an extent that he actually becomes a better person, luckily because he was imitating a better person. And of course, the inverse of that then is if you, you know, do something that's, you know, I wouldn't normally do this, but uh, I'm drunk or oh, I don't care anymore. Oh, I'm depressed. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. how you how you act does sort of come to inform your beliefs or, or your, 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 your philosophy, I guess, almost mm-hmm. as much as your philosophy um, – empowers your actions as you believe so shall you do so shall you believe (laughs) i like that yeah i like that a lot um 
it's sort of a, a message here about being who you are and playing to your strengths. You know, the Vendorian explains all of that, that he was inferior among his own people. So he, he turned to this sort of like life of crime. <laughs> the, only, the only people that saw any value in his abilities turned him into a criminal. Um, he figured other things out, though, along the way. He, he figured out love, and now he realizes that he can have a better life helping out the good guys. My cynical mind kicks in and says, uh, also, he got caught by the good guys. <laughs> yeah, so, that's true. You know, so there, there may be a little... Uh, may, there may be a different side to that story had he been exposed just purely on the bad guy's side and uh, actually ended up back on the Romulan ship. But I think the, the, the side of that that I was interested in is the idea that this Vendorian finds something better, fi- finds that little spark of uh, emotion or compassion, uh, morality, whatever it is, from his exposure to humans that made him different, made him better than what he thought he could be. Uh, so that gets back to that that Gene Roddenberry question again about the overall theme of Star Trek of saying, well, what is it about us, about humans that makes us unique? And does that rub off? And every now and then it does on an alien like the Smendorian who hopefully has a better life ahead of him. Hopefully he has a better life ahead of him. Although I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little worried about what happens to him once the trial's over. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, he, he did save the enterprise, but, and, and remember if, if the future of Star Trek history teaches us anything, it's that every now and then you can commit a crime, but if you save a starship, then, you know, maybe they'll go easy on you. Yeah, maybe I, I'm actually seeing more of a running man. He's Whitman price or Haddad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. He gets to go live on a planet and be happy. It's like it's like that dog you had that went to live on a farm. <laughs> oh no. I'm just I'm a tiny bit concerned. Although maybe if Anne you know persists in going to visit him, then mm-hmm. then uh, then then that won't happen. I'm not gonna sure. I'm not gonna write the uh, you know the next chapter of this. But um, if somebody wants to write that and send it to us, they could. Or if they just want to write and tell us you know what they thought of this episode or any past episodes or episodes to come. There are a bunch of ways to get in touch with us. John, do you want to tell people what those are? Sure thing. We'd love to hear from you. Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. All three places. The handle is Mission Log Pod. That's Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us at 323-522-5641. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I'm going to take the first one because I can pronounce it. Two more cartoons next week. The first one, The Infinite Vulcan. Followed by the magics of Megas 2. Music for Mission Log provided by Big Gorgon Trio. Find their self-titled album on iTunes. Additional music provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. In total cartoon parlance. That's all folks. Not my best imitation. And transmission. <laughs>